2: Welcome to Tales to Terrify.
3: Good evening, Children of the Night. Welcome again to the Nook. It's that time of the week, once again, for Tales to Terrify. I will be your host, Stephen Kilpatrick. Come on in and settle in. Keep an eye out for Mahler, the ink-black cat of the Nook. For this week, and the next two, we have something a bit different. Just before we get into that, as a reminder, please consider donating to the podcast on our website, com. and also, we're looking for an editor. Now to the important stuff. On September 12th of this year, many of our late hosts, Lawrence Santaro's friends, gathered at the coffee shop to memorialize him by reading from his work. We will be airing these readings on the podcast to continue to honor Larry, as this podcast is his baby. The audio was recorded in a venue, so it may be a little rough, but we've tried to touch it up a bit. The MC for the event was none other than Martin Munt. For folks who joined Tales to Terrify later in its life, this is particularly appropriate for us as his story and narration of that story was the very first to air on Tales to Terrify all the way back in Episode 1. He'll be handling the biographical information for the people reading. First up, for this week's installment of the audio, will be Chris Bell reading a section from Drink from the Thirst to Come then Mike Penkis, with A Word from the World, then Sally Duros, reading a selection of poetry.
2: We are here tonight to honor Larry Santoro. Cecilia's right here in the front, taking pictures, trying to figure out how to take pictures. Okay, good. She hasn't figured it out yet, and I'm on stage. That's best. The first reader tonight is B. Chris Bell. They first met at Printer's Row, Larry and Chris, when Larry came up to Chris asking about his uh, book covers. For those of you who haven't seen uh, Chris's book covers, he writes Pulp Fiction. Uh, The book covers are something to see. Here's one. I'm not sure everybody's going to be able to see this. Lurid is a good uh, description of Chris's book covers. Uh, You can see why Larry would like it. I like it. It attracted Larry, and he wanted to know more about the book covers. For a little bit about Chris... He's the author and creator of Tales of the Bagman, which is the book that you can probably not quite see, Chicago's very own pulp hero. He has also written Airship 27 Adventures for Secret Agent X, Jim Anthony's Super Detective, and the first volume of Dan Fowler's G Man Adventures. I think you can get the idea of what kinds of things Chris writes from those, uh, from those titles. Chris is going to read a selection of drink for the thirst to come from the from Larry's book of that same title uh, tonight. Are you ready? I've lost him. Oh there he is. <laughs> and here he is. be Chris Bell.
1: Oh, Oh. we're supposed to bring a little pebble up and talk about what we learned from Larry. Yeah, because she knows I'm going to start screaming. Um, What I learned from Larry most of all was to have fun with it. Um, we would discuss writing, and both of us would be having these major problems, and two completely different styles. But he would say, "Oh, you should, you know, you should do this with the plot and come up with a crazy plot I had never thought of." And I'd say, "You know, what if your character was Abraham Lincoln's cousin and came back, you know?" And it was it was all about writing what you wanted to write the way you want to write it. And when I first met him, I thought, ah, it's another horror guy. And then I thought, well, he's kind of a Ray Bradbury guy. And then at the end, I realized, no, this is just a guy standing around. He's right next to the campfire telling a story. And reading Larry's stuff is not easy. I hope you other readers studied. <laughs> I was telling Marty, this is like a garage band tribute to Beethoven. (laughs) So I'm going to try, in the words of a musician friend of mine, or to paraphrase, Larry, I hope I don't get up. (laughs) Drink for the thirst to come. That's the way Larry would have started it. Summer day and mild, mild weather. A day like no other. A day of sun and warmth, of swimming, friends and beer. A day of just up corn stolen from the field above the quarry. Cobs wrapped in mud, roasted in fire ash, butter rubbed into the chair till it dripped down the fingers. Later, black clouds rolled across the green forever. A thunder anvil filled the world above with miles high darkness and the smell of how a penny tasted. Late day rain cleared the midsummer heat and brought a chill before the night. A crash down, bang, beauty and wonder. A wonder at the fury of it all. A bombardment, personal, from God in heaven to Chris Harp from out Hall Road, Dolph Station, Texas. As they clambered up the slope, downrushing mud washed the earth from beneath their feet and hands and they all slid back to the shelf above the water below, trapped and laughing, at the next down, flash and bang, the girls, Lord bless them, Sally Wayne, J.C. Dalton, Sarah Gonzalez, Winnie Border, wriggled, squealing beneath the blankets, trapped. So what the hell? Chris dove into the water. Height of the storm, lightning strikes and thunder coming, flash, bam, down he dives. He cleaved deep water, down to where the world was cold and green, and the thunder pressed his whole body with terrible immediacy, Little fishies in a mass shuddered, turned around by regiments.
2: Perfect.
1: The guys, Tex Aker, Billy Madeira, Marty Munt, dove in after that. Let them follow, let them not. This was for him, his perfect day. All a game, not for forever. Forever, hell, forever was inside him. Chris Harp, he carried forever in his every grunt and drip. Later, with no expectation, J.C. Dogton was under the blanket with him, in his space, and he and her, and her good, and sweet, long, and quiet, so not to be heard, and wholly without perpetuation, preparation, and ah, the smell of sweat, and wool, and them. Later, when they hit the diner, the days begin to bleed away. They still roll with joy when they order. A dozen voices call as they wait. They rock the eyes of the Sunday folk who turn Methodist stares upon them. Sure, they're the center of attention, and as this is a dream of perfection, he was the center of that center. They bit old Uli's ass, they surely did, but even she smiles as she takes their orders, brings the grub. Had to love them. Chris Harp and friends, lords of the earth, holders of forever. By the window, Chris watches night seep from the trees that fence the joint. Texas, nights, Texas night shines the rain slick machinum in the blot. Their, pick, their pickup kicks back orange glitter from sodium lights and is always on the road, walking from nowhere, going who knew where. Barefoot, white hair flying ahead, shirt open, flapping, ragged jeans, gray with dust. There comes walking Will, the old guy. Grandpa told us a will from down 34, told a walking will who walked the land preaching judgment at the end of times, who shouts out scripture and he takes offered rides on truck or wagon, then somewhere, nowhere, cries. God says, walk here. And out he leaps to walk wherever down a road into the fields. Now here he comes, same one, same as always, looking back at those left behind, he calls, you, Drink, you drink for the thirst to come. Chris watches beneath the table. J.C. docks and takes his hand. Days bled to memories, beer and thunder, chill water, butter, corn, and her. And with that memory, his final convulsion and the tingle as he flows from himself into J.C. and into the world. The perfect dream becomes one more dirty morning, and night is gone with the dream. And there lay Chris Harp. Dirty little man of more than middle years, and those years hidden unto his own damn self, he walked into a dark and ugly morning, as always. He breathed stench. Everywhere the reek of mold and ash and long ground fire and rust of rotted teeth and unwashed pit and crotch, his and hundreds more. One bunk above, the one-eyed kid from nowhere, still cut wood with the rest of the ring. For seconds, Chris held the dream. When he shoved it away, time it was to rise, shinny down the bunks and be. Johnny's ice house flop was cold. He shivered into his shirt and pants, wrapped the static chain around his waist. Thin metal, fine and supple as yarn, let it curl in his pocket with his breathing silks. His jacket was bald bald beneath the blanket. Leather, fur trimmed, it had come all the way on the walk. In the pocket, his cell. He stroked dead plastic. Touched the numbers of home. He took his boots over the edge, wagged his socks and threads, let floormen worry about stray critters, he thought, slipped into his socks. The old guy's socks. Remember me, the old guy said, a couple of months ago. Was that all? Said before he gave his all to the Vendateria. The socks were warm, a little stiff. Chris wiggled his toes, no holes, good tubes, tight wove, thick. (laughs) They're new, the old guy had said. Knew they was. By some miracle, bag knew. Survivors of the day, the socks, a miracle of all the days between the day and the old guys of finding them, found in plastic, three pairs full. Chicago's gone, but my socks survive. Found out of that mess below the clap ceiling, mixed they was with skates, pucks, and bust-up junk from Gunzo's Pro Shop at Johnny's, in the blast shadow the place was, I believe Sears Tower saved them socks. The old guy pressed his socks into Chris's hands. Remember me, my name, he said. Chris kept the socks close. Thank you, Sears Roebuck, and all things in between. Thank you, old guy. Never was no good with names. Sorry. Socks were pure worth. Chris had his own worth too. He still ate thistle, but was that close to the boss table. That close. He'd get there, cans bottom maybe, but something from the can at least. A little fat, a little bit of... Fuck you, Harp, Chris told himself. There's this day to do. And the next to end, so it would go until he heard Chris Harp rise. Then he'd move on up to that deluxe apartment in the sky. What the hell was that from? What cripes? So much gone. If he didn't rise to the boss table, well, hell, tumbleweed sprout called Thistle in Texas stayed in him, stayed down anyway. Gave him juice to run on. Not everyone was that lucky. Time to motivate. Early worm gets the top weed. Chris smacked the slats above him. The kid's snores gurgled before turning to tears. What the hell? The kid? What was his name? Worth playing nothing. And that was fact. Chris wondered why the boss... No, shut down that goddamn plank. He did not wonder why the boss anything. Down the pole went Chris. By the mechs, past fireman Bill and the, and the drooler... He hit the floor where he'd tucked last night's TV Johnny snoozing pill. A celebrity and still on the floors lost the series this premiere. This Johnny'd been last night. Maybe Chris would be TV John tonight. He was a tolerable Simpsons, but no one, not a one, was My Name Is Earl like Christian Hart. Now that was one A shitload of worth. Watch your hiddens, Hart. Damn hiddens kill. Gray light shafted through the roof 30 feet above. It lay busted on snoring lumps that quivered and farted across the floor of the rink. Time to move. There'd be shadow today. The long season was ending. The boss had said, so there it was, sky is clearing, five year, winter verging on spring. And then, then earth returns, bears fruit, and and enough of that. In the lobby, more light, knife through the curving wall and ceiling. For a second, he watched the beams crawl. They licked the floor, folded over trophy cases, caught the once glass pictures of men on ice. One hell of a spot must have been the ice house lobby back in the day, back in the day before the day. Fuck it. He skittered, crunching glass and beams of dirty light that cut through pulver dust. It was a spooked out place, though none spoke of spooks or living dead. Ain't no living dead, boss had said. Still, sometimes late. Dragging back from a wharf hunt, be it folly or for the boss, Chris felt shivers in the neck hair. Just wall crackles or creeping skitters among shards and busted brick. Sure, sure. But when shadows flickered in tallow flame, yeah, he scooted. Ahead of thoughts, of walking will, barefoot in the busted earth. Then nights, Chris shinnied to his bunk, wriggled down beneath his blanket like a girl and let the snoring ease in. Goddamn blinking again. The tin sheet over the doorway thundered as he wiggled into morning. Light cut through the snumps of buildings wetward, and there, his shadow, a sun fade, falling through the dust. It dragged westward from his feet toward the outskirts and long-gone burbs. He felt like dancing over his shadow. He did not, and there was the gong, the always and forever bong, 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 distant, Tolling out of the wet. One day he'd like to... No, no, not his business, them bongs. Still he wandered in day, night, wind, or none. Bong, 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 bong. Even in light, the ice house was a black mass. Bomb bag, brick swipe gray with pulver. A bob-wire path led there to the center. The boss decreed it, a path of prongs to keep you straight in deep dark, in swirling dust or driving snow. This morning even poles and wire threw down shadow. They made a choppy lane 100 yards to the center. Chris could barely see it now in the pitch, but it was out there. More char black brick, more sheet tin, more gray, the forever dust here at World's End. Thank you.
2: Second up is Mike Pankus. And I have a bio, very short, somewhere. I've known Mike for a long time. I met him at Twilight Tales, which is also where I met Larry. Mike first met Larry at Twilight Tales about 10 years ago. (laughs) That's because that's where almost all of us met each other. Over the years, he says he's also seen him at Bad Grammar, which was another reading series, and at Gumbo Fiction, which was yet another reading series. A couple of years ago, uh, Larry accepted one of Mike's stories, Wet Dog Perfume for Tales to Terrify, which is a... An oral reading series that Larry, a podcast that Larry hosted, which was, is still a wonderful thing. He also took several of my stories, a poem and various movie reviews, I guess you'd call them, for it. So that's where Mike knows him from. Start moving up, Mike. You're next. and mike is going to read a word from the a word from the world which is from a twilight tales anthology called winter tales which is from a long long time ago Do you know the date on that 1996 98 1998 so that's a long time ago this is mike pankus
4: Uh, yeah a couple things Uh, another thing about Tales to Terrify is uh, the way the podcast would work is there would be two uh, stories featured every week that uh, Larry would introduce and say a few words about each of the writers and uh, the way he would set it up would usually be, there would be a more established author who'd been working for years and had developed something of a name for himself or herself. And Larry would try to pair that with someone who was just starting out um, and, you know, did not have, would not bring the same audience to the event, but needed, uh, would benefit from the exposure. And I mean, if we're talking about things that Larry taught us, the idea that once you achieve some success and once you develop a name for yourself, you, you hold the door open for the next group that comes through than the others. And Larry was was at many reading events and, you know, he's equally gracious with people who were just starting out and people who'd been in it for years. Um, when I was told about the event, uh, I, I was a little nervous about reading a story that Larry had written because so many of his uh, he, his stories he bring, brought such a, a such a voice, such a personality. It was just this real, larger-than-life persona he brought to his work, and I, I was saying, "Well, I really wanted to find a quieter story, something that." I wouldn't have to shout a lot or have to emote as much as Larry could do. Larry's voice could fill this place. He, he wouldn't need this. Uh, so uh, I chose this one, uh, A Word from the World. <clears throat> the snow had started the day before. The sun was bright in a clear sky, and it snowed. Each flake caught the sun. Sparkles swam in the air and streaked along the wind. People passing on Cottage Street kept looking up to the clear sky to let the cold colors hit them in the eye or on the glasses. They smiled, admiring their shadows as they walked in the sunny, sunny snowstorm falling around them. A real curiosity, Pop-Pop called it. Soon, though, the sky became gray and the snow continued into the dark. This was more like it. All the things that blew and rolled down streets, all the things that stood at corners, that squatted in the back alley or at the bottom of the yard, were first stopped, pinned to the ground by the falling snow, then covered into lumps. It snowed all through supper and after. It snowed through the radio and Pop Pop's reading. It snowed even harder when I went to bed. All night I'd wake and go to the window to wish for more. I pressed my face against the cold glass to peer at the sky above the eaves. I wanted there to be more snow in it, and there was. The sky was black, but the air was lit by the streetlight at the end of the alley. Pieces of white day fell through the night and brushed little whiskers against the glass. I thought the wet chill would crack my cheek when I smiled. In the morning, the world was new. Yesterday's lumps were smooth, and the spaces between them were even and white. In the yard, the snow had rolled in on waves of wind from over the far fence and dropped quietly and deeply. It filled the space from the back of the house to the alley, then buried the fence in the alley. Then it buried the Irby's fence across the way, then buried their yard too. Then everything was all the same. When the wind blew hard enough to make the electric pole by the corner sway and the wires clack and chatter, their icy silver loads that have been building through the storm, Pop-Pop looked up and down the alley. He shook his head. We'd best stay in, he said, all of us. Falling wires, he said. Careful, he said. Electrocution, he said. Nana looked into the pantry and shook her head. Food will never last, she said. When the wind howled, the snow rose alive, spinning, and the world went white, so big a thing as Mount Amos disappeared. So too did Aunt and Uncle Irby's house across the alley. Our yard began now at the back door and went on forever, around other houses and on forever. The world was just our place, just our house, and the sweetly shaped mounds of snow stretching forever. A few black lines crossed above or rose from it, a pole down the way, the very tips of the back fence, dead, black, morning glory vines still hanging in tatters from summer. Then nothing, the end of the world, our place only. I said once, by the time the telegram came, I already knew, here's what happened. It was in that snow, Mother and I were on the front porch. A trolley passed the house and rumbled slowly, slipping wheels spinning uphill toward the end of town. A man came up the sidewalk. Through the snow, I heard him whistling rum and Coca-Cola. I laughed. Snow was blowing in front, behind, around him. It was climbing his legs and wrapping his face. It looked as if you could see right through him, as though pieces of him were being carved away by the wind. He looked alive inside the snow. I laughed some more. He heard me laugh and looked up. He saw me on the porch with mother. He looked at the door behind me, then at the envelope in his hand. I laughed, and he had seen us. Mother was tucking me, buttoning my face into the wool snowsuit, already wet from the blowing snow. I laughed, and she turned to see. She saw the man coming and stopped. Her fingers stopped on the button at my mouth. I could smell cold, wet wool and my mother's warm skin cold cream smooth and fragrant from morning's dishes. The street was empty. The hill was white all the way to where it disappeared. Black sticks stuck out here, there, trees, a fence, foam poles. The trolley tracks were black lines along the way. Then they glazed over white, then vanished. The wind howled, and for a minute the street faded into white, then vanished too. The man disappeared with the rest of the world. The world was our porch and mother frozen at my mouth. And I thought, good, he's gone. Daddy will be all right. Then the wind dropped its voice and the man stepped onto our porch and shook his hat like a dog. There was nothing to it at all. He wiped his glasses with his finger like a windshield wiper. They fogged up again and he took them off and squinted at the paper. Mrs... Ernesto D'Angelo? Mother nodded. D'Angelo. Yes, Ernest. It's just Ernie. His name is. Yes, Ernesto. But he's just Ernie. He brushed the snow off the envelope gently. He was so gentle, she reached for it, took it, held it, turned it over in her hands. He said, sign here, and gave her a book and a pen. He wouldn't write. Sorry, she said. He took back the pen and blew on it, then rolled it between his two hands, shook it. A big splat of blue plopped onto the snow on the porch. Sorry, he said. She said, that's all right, and wrote in the man's book. She put the cap back on the pen and handed it to him, said, I'll have to get you some money. And he said, that's okay, Mrs. Ma'am, that's okay. I don't need any. I don't usually get Then he was gone toward town. Another blast of wind rolled the snow, but I could still see him. In a second, the trolley loomed down the hill. It slid on the rails. Sparks showered into the snow from the line above. It stopped, silent for a moment. It was the only thing we could see in the world. And the man, the trolley and the man. The man got into the trolley. The bell clanged and sounded very close in the woolly snow and the silence. The sweep of the wind went with it somehow the trolley growled its sandy wheels against the tracks and disappeared toward town mother held the envelope i had been forgotten the woolly button at my mouth was still loose the envelope was very small i knew it meant that daddy wouldn't be home that he was going to stay at the pacific theater until the next show or the next one can you imagine that That he'd stay away for a long, long time, and that I'd be an orphan now? I didn't want people to look at me right then. I didn't want them to talk to me. All I knew was the backyard was filled with snow taller than me. I followed her into the house. I was a ghost, invisible. I could make noises but not lift things, not change things. I could only be what had already been. No one spoke. Mother stood in the living room and looked at the envelope. It dripped. Nana came down from upstairs and stopped on the steps to look. Pop-Pop came in from the kitchen and looked. I continued on through the house. No one noticed. To the kitchen. There were voices distant behind me. I went out back. I was ready for the snow for the day. The whole expanse of yard was at my feet. The snow drifted in curving hills to the second floor of Uncle Irby's place. Maggie the dog looked out an upper window at me. Her tongue on the glass made clear places in the breath haze that bloomed around her nose and muzzle. The snow started at my feet. I could tunnel through the world, I thought. A tunnel could go anywhere. Everywhere. It would be very cold under the snow, but maybe not too dark. Snow was white. I dragged open the door to the back porch toilet. The Kaibo, Pop-Pop called it. It was now just a storage place for garden things. Junk, old spiders and dust. Things forgotten. My summer shovel and pail. Too small to dig a tunnel through the world. I tossed them aside. I found Nana's garden spade. Too long, too heavy. Pop-Pop's cinder shovel was just my size. He used it to fill gunny sacks with furnace ashes. These he kept in the trunk of the Salle for winter weight, for traction. The shovel was short, light. It had a pointed blade. I could dig anywhere with it. A good tool is the first part of a good job, daddy'd said. I scooped as I waited down the steps. I tossed, packed, shoved, and soon was at the bottom of the porch stairs. The snow rose over my head. I was surrounded by whiteness and was dripping hot already. Sweat tickled back my Tickled down my back and became cold on my skin. I pushed my mittens into the snow in front. It gave way. I leaned into it and fell slowly, gently carried to the ground. I scooped shovels full behind me. Soon I was on my knees and burrowing like a groundhog on my way. I shoved the cold, packed whiteness aside, pressing it against the walls of my tunnel, forcing my way into the heart of winter. It was bright day. I realized soon how large the world was. I had no idea before. I scooped and scraped, padded and pressed the sides of the tunnel, the roof, smoothed it all, made it nice, kept going. The sun was far away on the other side of the snow roof, out there. Faint light seeped from where I had begun at the porch down to where I dug. It darkened as I scooped. I wished I had brought Daddy's nightcrawler lantern. I could see it under his bench in the basement. I could see it in the cardboard box, a rag covering most of it. I could see its little clear dome and shiny handle, its flat metal base. I could feel its weight carrying it in the darkening snow tunnel. I could almost see the rings of light it made on the tree leaves overhead. Could almost hear Daddy talking about the fishing we'd have with this beauty that he dangled in front of my nose before dropping the worm wriggling into the pail laughing. Mosquitoes and other sweaty summer bugs sang in my ears, climbed in the light against the leaves. The fat worm wriggled into the dirt in the pail and was gone. lamp was back there, a world away, in the basement, under the place where people talked. My breath was just dull gray now, not silver bright anymore. I wondered how far I'd come, Nowhere near the other side of the world, I knew. I didn't think I was even at the end of the yard. I tucked my knees to my chin and scooted around to lean against the tunnel wall and breathe. The Irby house was ahead. I'd have to get around it. That was first, then around the garage, then through Pan's Park, then up the mountain. After the mountain was the other side, down to Carsonia long way from there was Philly. After that, I wasn't sure. I knew that the Pacific Theater started somewhere after Philly. Daddy had gone first to Philly, then somewhere else. If I could only remember what Daddy had said about everything, I could find him if I could remember. I knew that. Everything that Daddy had said was important now, was clues, I had to remember to not get confused with other things, things I made up, things other people told me. If I could remember it all, I could get to him and we could watch Gone with the Wind together at the Pacific Theater, then come home. Maybe get some ice cream first at Rexall, some hot chocolate, then we'd come home. I was really mad, just like Daddy got sometimes at me. I was really mad. When I punched the sides of the tunnel, the wall gave way a little. I punched it again. Then I scooped. I widened the scoop. I scraped above, dug below. Soon there was a side passage going a different way. It pointed toward 18th Street. I knew that. The world was so large, I could avoid the...
3: Planning for your next trip?
4: I started deepening this new route. It was very, very dark in a very short time. Black. I had to back out to where I had branched off. Maybe the other way. I dug for another few minutes until it got too dark in that way and returned to the main shaft. Curve? Maybe the light would follow a gentle bend? It seemed right, and I started to angle left, making the main route to the world into a long, gentle arc. Soon it was dark again, and I just wanted to stretch out and rest. I was going to need light. I scooped out a little room in the snow, enough space for me to just stretch out. I lay flat on my back, looked up. If I closed my eyes and pressed against them with my mittens, it was a different dark than if I kept them open. I liked that. It was so quiet out here in the world. The snow was just a few inches above my face. I reached up and smoothed it, smoothed it flat smoothed it hard like a well-packed snowball it was warmer in there than it was on the outside where wind blew and the cold tried to suck the air out of my chest there was no wind and the tips of my ears were hot my fingers were wrinkled it was warm i made a little place to lean it fit me well and was so comfortable i scraped the ceiling some snow fell on my face it tasted good almost sweet It melted in my mouth and trickled down my throat. It melted on my nose and ran down my neck. How long would the snow last? How long until it went away and the whole earth would be hard and confusing again, with too many roads everywhere and not enough ways to get there? Snow always lasted a long time, but never long enough. I couldn't really rest if I was going to tunnel to the Pacific to find Daddy. I started again. Didn't think, just started into the darkness. "'That is what I'm doing,' I said. "'I'm digging to find Daddy at the Pacific Theater "'and watch Gone with the Wind with him. "'Sock, the morons, first shirt, "'and all the guys from basic training and his letters. "'We'd all be together. "'Maybe I'd need an airplane to fly over the boot camp, "'to fly over England, "'where the drooling British lived in darkness, "'and to get to the Pacific Theater, "'where they were all watching Gone with the Wind. "'I knew it was a long way to travel, "'but all the world was covered in snow.' I was certain of that, and that meant that I could get there from here. I'd dig under boot camp, under the British. Then I'd bring him home, and we can all go to Carsonia Park. And this time, this time, I will. I will ride Blitz in the Roller Coaster, and maybe I'll even stand and not worry about the Don't Stand sign. I'll forget about rats and dirty feet. We'll go to the shooting gallery and shoot the bear together and win big rabbits and give them to Mother. I won't lose my shirt. I won't lose my head. I was digging in the dark as I was thinking. It was pitch black. I couldn't see anything. I could just feel the snow, the cool snow, giving way and being left behind. I hit something. It was hard. It was not ground, not snow. I scraped away around it. It was wood. I could feel it. Wood. It was smooth. I recognized its feel. It was an edge, the edge of my sandbox. I had dug to the sandbox. I was only to the sandbox. On it, had I been able to see, would be puppies playing with butterflies, a boy and a girl digging in the sand by a beach. Waves would be rolling, painted on the wood by my sandbox. I was only to the box, and days must have gone by since I started. I scooped around the edge of the box, opened up the tunnel to another direction. I was angry, yelling was only to the sandbox. I stopped and leaned against the wood. It felt warm. Summer was still in it. The plywood top covered the sand. The sand was summer. It was still there, still in the box under the snow with me. It was summer and back when I had a daddy. I could hear my breath coming in and going out. I couldn't see it soon i got quieter it was warmer i heard nothing no breathing no wind nothing at all not carsonia just the distant voices of memory my tunnel dropped away it fell behind me i was lifted from the world into a swirl of snow and the blasts of wind there were arms all around me there were legs and chests pop pops jowls and mother her hands took me hands carried me to the house it was hot i was laid on the table the light was overhead, bright. I felt hands reaching, opening my snowsuit, hands reaching into the wet wool and drawing me out, peeling my clothes away. Then I was bare and was being carried up the steps. Water was running in the tub. Mother's hands rubbed me. Nana's voice said, rub him with a terry cloth towel. Rub him and here, make him drink this shot of liquor. And burning hot, it went down my throat and sat warm in my stomach. I wanted to, and I did throw up. Then I went into the hot, hot water, and everything was steam and water lapping in my ears, and there were tears. Later, Mother told me in bed that Daddy was lost in action in the Pacific Theater. I knew that, but I listened to her anyway. I wondered for days after if I had died. Of course I had not. Dr. Kotzen said I was fine. Pop-Pop looked for his shovel for a long time. I kept thinking it was in the Pacific when the snow was gone. There it was.
2: Thank you, Mike. And I remember that story from 16 years ago. From the old Red Lion. Uh, Next up is Sally Duros. Yes, surprise, Sally, you're up. Um, She is going to read some of Larry's earlier poems I have written down. I think they were unpublished. That's about all I have here. So I'll let her tell you about them. Sally Duros. <laughs> oh.
5: Oh, you know, I don't know if I can sit down and read because Larry never taught me how to sit down and read. He only taught me how to stand up and read. Oh, my God, how will I do this? Um, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, these are, when I first met Larry, uh, he was reading, he was writing this prose poetry about his early life. And I was also writing prose poetry about my early life. And so we met when we were reading together, basically is how we met. And he, and I was invited to do a reading at a gallery and, um, he coached me. So that's, you know, that's how I know these pieces. And um, I picked one. I was going to read a couple. But I actually think I'll just read one. And the one I picked is a little bit off color. But it's kind of, yeah, it's a, kind, it's a light. And I'm just hoping that, that, Larry, wherever you are, you will forgive me. Because I can't do the boy parts like you could at all. But I will try. <laughs> I will do my best. So can you hear me? Do I need to adjust this thing? Good. It's good. Okay, good. Okay. So this piece is called The Facts of Life. And it's it's a little racy, but the raciness doesn't last too long. Not too long. After love and the long giggle-making shrivel tickle out of her after holding our separate beauty salted with the taste of memory and the slow exfoliation of our skins, breasts and thighs, bellies and bushes, peeling back, untwining, after lips and tongue had cleaned and dried and tidied her, delicious on my face, after, while my fingers combing, unfolded her parting lips in an echo, remembering, remembering after. Remembering the last words my mother gave, sending me off to 16th and Hack, pushing me, snuffling, shuffling, through the brownstone arch into the rest of my life. Before letting go a little bit forever, remembering my mother's last suggestion, tucking, wetting back the cowlick tuft, turning me round and round at the whirlwind border, where our street declined, declined, The play lot pipes and chains, its billion brush burns waiting. Potential now in slick back and bubbly asphalt red redolence. In September, summer remnant, hot and bright, remembering our final language lesson,
6: this. If you have
5: to go, say number one or number two. Number one is to tinkle. Number two is to make your uglies. They won't know those words, our words. Those words are ours. Remember, number one is to tinkle. Number two is to make your uglies. Do you remember? This gets complicated, but you have to learn sometime. I was a quiet kid, sheltered perhaps by the mountain in our yard, by the books beneath my bed. <laughs> I'm sorry.
6: <laughs> by the... Um... Sorry, I didn't know what's it. It's the books beneath the bed. Um,
5: <laughs> by the opera, Saturdays, by Mother, Nana, Pop Pop, and Daddy. And in my turn, I sheltered them from what I was and could become. But this is the way it was. The color girl, Brenda, in our class, was going to have a baby. Head down, silent in her side row, back of the room seat. Well we giggled by her last few days with us, then gone. Gone back to the place where the orphans lived. One block up, one block over, the home we called it. 1010 Center Avenue, Mrs. Fainfrock called it. Sixth grade and going to have a baby. What, mother asked, sudden and slow that evening after dinner. Daddy at the paper, just fingers and legs on the couch. What would you do? if she says, you are her baby's father. Oh God, oh God, oh no. God gulping, not at fathering Brenda's baby. That was silly. It was my mother's slide across the floor toward me, which God engulped me. Her her pleange the seat next to mine and her pur Oh, Puggy you have to know the facts of life sometime. In fact, I knew them. That last summer, Cousin Fred up from Chester for the yearly meld of family, kids, ours, me, and Anton DeWinna, and Uncle Jim's, Barbara, Fred, and Gal. the Germans. Cousin Fred broke my life one day that summer, told the tale that day on the way home from the matinee, how Daddy and Mommy did it, and why. You know, you know where, down there, you know, you have your, you have your thing. Well, down there, she doesn't have it. He hasn't got it. Down round the belly button, she's got no thing. She, your mother. Less than no thing, a hole down there. And when you're in love, you put it there. In there. And move around and back and forth. And pretty soon it feels real good. And that hole down there feels so good, they soon begin to hug and kiss. They do. They do. And then they have a baby later. Have a baby because they love each other? Because it feels real good, he said. He said they do it for fun is why. For fun? I am for fun. I. For one pump and stroke of fun? With his thing, his tinkler thing, and her thing, her no thing? I am for fun. Now, tinkler fun, I knew. It gets complicated, but you have to learn sometime. The secret. Sixteenth and Hack, kindergarten, first day, number one and number two day. Ah, uh, no, ah, uh, Larry, she said. Larry? Larry, is it? Is that it Larry? Not, not now, Larry. You have to wait. You have to wait till we can all go. Discipline, she said. This little lady person. This lean young little lady, not my mother, not an aunt, nor Nana. This lady suddenly supreme with power, complete over number one and number two. We'd all go together at one time, she said. And then later, forever later, in rows down the hall to the place of boys, the place of girls, sixteen boys all together in that place, the lavatory, eight at the trough, the other eight waiting behind, water sweated, pipes dripping, trickling. And yes, tinkling down the zinky sides of where half the boy, half number one together, giggling. Eight alphabetized boys waiting our time behind, waiting for the, waiting to the liquid hiss and bubble in bouncing tummy pain and kidney pop. Sixteen boys a giggle, tinklers a hand, doing or waiting, nudging, splashing, spraying, to one who could not wait, who could not wait, nudged between and wet his neighbor. And the neighbor wetted him. And they, their neighbors both, they wetted. Till back row waited, could wait no longer, and waited to the tickler party. Waving law for low, fencing, jousting, ballistic arcs, trajectories, dead-eye shots. Soaking sprinkles, ganged on fatty Stevie, heart ramped, holding us back with ack ac bursts and laughs. Shoe soaked, socks seeped through, pants and shirts, until our lean young little lady, she was not our mother, blew wide the door and wondered just, just what we thought we did, and marched us dripping past the crisp girls waiting, marched us laughing past the dry girls giggling. That was tinkler fun. <laughs> but this other this, this This, from where I came, gets complicated, but you have to learn sometime. It all made sense. The nights lost in my bed, turned by dark and terror, crawling down the hall to my parents' room on hands and knees, or on tummy, shriveling past the long side hall to the attic where the dark things waited, and in their starlit room, pulling down the tented sheets, fell safely sleeping on their floor by their feet. Then their anger in the mornings, finding me there wondering, Wondering, just what did I think I was doing? Quiet kid, sheltered by the mountain in our yard, protected by the books beneath my bed. That line. By the opera, Saturdays, my mother, Nana, Pop Pop, and Daddy. Then, oh, Puggy, you have to know the facts of life sometime. And I ran, ran to my room and closed me in. And sheltered them from what I was, what I was and could become till I killed them one by one, then bit by bit became them all. That's it.
2: I didn't expect that. Yes. Next up, if I can turn my page. Next up is Deb Miller, who will be reading Root Soup, Winter Soup. from Drink through drink for the Thirst to Come. She gave me a short bio, which I will read when I can find it. Deb, Deborah Miller is a Chicago actor who tours the country performing as Mary Todd Lincoln, Jane Austen, and several other influential women with her company, A Woman of Letters. As an associate member of Terra Mysterium Theater Company, as an associate member of Terra Mysterium Theater Company, Deborah first met Larry while working on Larry's adaptation of the toy theater for the induction of writer Gene Wolfe into the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. His great affection and talent and the friendship of Larry and Cecilia have had an inestimable effect on her life and career. Here is Deb Miller.
6: I didn't get to spend nearly enough time with Larry, but he was with me every Friday when I would listen to Tales to Terrify, when I would make my house bright and shining and my brain very black. (laughs) I loved listening to Larry's voice. It just, it rumbled inside of me and it felt like midnight rain. The weather today is perfect for root soup, winter soup. Cordelia and trees. She saw in the still water of the pond her silly old face and no one else. That funny old face smiled up. She wiggled her finger in the cold water and Cordelia was alone, except in the trees. Leaves floated, lazy, half on top, half under the water, hardly drifting. Afternoon air was cool, heading to cold. Cold nights are coming. Soon them leaves be cotched up and froze in, she knew, cotched good. The pond would be an ice sheet, then covered with fallen things, leaves, acorns, and little branches, more leaves and other goods as fell. A person don't know it's there. Might could fall right in, she thought. Well, she knew it was there. The critters that wandered there for a drink knew it, too. They would have to tap, tap by hoof or claw on the icy shell to water there. Soon they'd eat snow or perish to the thirst. She knew that. The pond water stilled. And there was that old Cordelia face again. Minnows swimming through. Well, there she was. Couldn't see the scars. Not like when she looked in the peering glass. No. Could see how one eye was a little sagged. Could see her funny crooked back nose. Could see. Ah, oh, fuss, she said. What's the point? His season's over. He is gone and done with and good riddance to him. He who'd given her that eye, that nose, that curly lip. She stirred the water again, chased the face away. Her minis scattered. She laughed. (laughs) Walking, Cordelia gathered the woolly hunting jacket around herself. Real cold coming. Time indeed for her root soup. Her winter soup. She looked forward to the good smells as filled her cabin, Winters. She wanted to run and do it quick, hug the comfort, the wonder of the forever pot. The pot going down with eaten, the pot filled up again with bits added, an essence from the stock pot, more chopped roots and other pieces from the cellar. The forever pot of root soup, God's good winter soup. Mm. Another year and no one found her morel patch where it lay sprouting. The seasoned shrooms had been fine and plentiful, big-headed, tender, and clean-grown through the rocks, and all hers for taken. A time gone, someone had felled a stand of trees where the morels sprouted now. Someone building, maybe. Someone who gave give up and moved on, she figured. Maybe a long time gone. New growth had sprouted since and filled around the wasted logs. Good. This season, hundreds of more morels had spread across the moldering stumps between the old cut and fallen logs. A thousand more had spread onto that damp forest floor where decay made a wet and fragrant bed. She'd shown that hunter, but none had found a place on their own. Not a one. <laughs> none would. The season was over. Cold, come pick and done. She thought. Even these last smelled good as she added them to her sack. Long things they were, thick-brained and heavy with wet. The roadway parsnips she cultivated another place back in the deep woods. They too had a good season. Each fat root had burrowed way down. Rich they were within the earth. Their long finger ends reached deep. Deep, hairy roots spread wide, held place in the ground. They didn't want to come up and out, but up and out they'd come, and she'd stocked her cellar. (laughs) Cordelia loved the burlap's trickle on her shoulder, like a game bag swinging with her walk, heavy with her potatoes, onions, carrots, and snips. Near home now, with the last of the season's sweet things heavy in her bag, Cordelia couldn't wait to make a start. The chopping was first, a long part of it, but the heart of winter soup. Scrubbing, making it clean for the stock, the careful scraping, paring, and cutting the pieces, shaped just right for the pot. The broth, the savor of the thing, each thickness just right to release its flavor. God loved good soup, and Cordelia made a good, Good winter sleep. At home now, she stoked the stove with seasoned logs, last year's cut. She built sweet, laid the bed for slow, steady heat. She watched as the old logs, the large ones that had lain in porchway shade through the summer and early fall, caught flame by their ends and barbs. daddy scampered into the fire's wink and hail. Spiders twitched and ran. Old cocoons opened, wiggling. Not nice, maybe. But all those little lives, she figured, added to the savor. Gave flavor to the scent. The earthy scent of God's good soup. She chopped into the dark of night. She scraped and parboiled, shaved, halved, and quartered. <laughs> the scrapings, the bits, ends, and tails, thin parsnips fingers, she added to the stock. She crushed the herbs to free the essence and added them to the mix. Then, one more thing. The black iron shears hung heavy on her apron tie. She held her lantern ahead. The picnic basket swung free, crooked in her other arm, the, the busted, withered one. A bottle of whiskey sloshed, safely nestled in a mess of torn rag and spangum. Fall leaves hushed in the dark. The shush 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 of her foot sweeps spread among the trees. Night critters went quietly she past. She stepped off a hundred paces up the hill and counted a little more to pass the pond. Another count took her beyond her shrooming patch. Except for her, the forest was still. She didn't need light for the walk. Light was needed for the work down in the cellar in the dark cellar. The root cellar was where life was wanted. The oak plank door lay across a hole in the hillock. A Civil War lock hung cold against the boards and hasp, covered with leaves it was, and near-invisible days, part of the world at night. The lock snapped open. As she raised the door, the earth smell from below breathed over her. Earth and, and more. She descended the four steps. The light led her. Then came the noise. Iron against rock. The clatter cut the silence. A body moaned and rattled his iron bonds against his rock, his earthbound rock. She hadn't known him. Just a huntsman has come walking through the woods, lost. Ask him. She offered a drink of whiskey and pointed away. He came back, still lost. She said she'd lead, then asked his help. A little thing, please. So good to be a help. God gave to those who helped. Some more whiskey, and he was in chains like that. (laughs) Those chains and more held him now to that rock below the world in her cellar. No man she knew. Her light caught him now.
2: He was white
6: like a grub and naked. She left him blankets, but no clothes to wear. He hung, naked, hugging his rock. He looked up. He cried. <laughs> Why, yes, oh, Lord, yes. He did live under the ground like one of them things that's wiggled under the rotted logs that fed her morels. She had to chuckle. His head was long and thin, not much face to him, narrow-hooked nose thin yellow beard she hardly could see in the yellow of her lantern his head was flat on top his teeth was busted crooked he cried and tried to stand he stood and dangled she laughed again on top of the world he wouldn't have cried but she had things to do she rolled the whiskey jar to him and sat to watch it took a time he yelled he cried he made to throw the jar at her head She laughed, sweetly. Cordelia had a pretty laugh. Funny face, but a pretty laugh. The man blubbered. He shouted, why? Other things, but the heart of it was why. Drink, she said, and it won't hurt. By and by, he drank. Long pulls, tears coming between gulps and runny nose blubbers. In less than an hour, the screams were only hoarse bubbles. She clipped three fingers and some meat from his hand, a couple of toes from his left foot. He screamed and bled. She caught the blood in a mason jar and capped it. She wrapped his hand and foot and spang him and left more rags. She almost left, then returned and scissored off a rasher of fat from his gut, you know, the flabby place. He screamed and bubbled, but by then it was over. Leave the man oysters for later, she figured. Take them now, the loose spirit. Men, <laughs> so silly and so sweet, she thought. Believe in their hearts, way down. Their lives, their God spirit comes from there, down the root and sack between their legs. <laughs> she left a few more rags and the bottle. The blood smelled rich. The thick warmth pillowed the earthy scent of the cellar. She hoped he'd be all right. She liked the blood aroma of this one. Later that night, the cries came all the way to her cabin, sobs and curses. She heard even as the pots came boiling. Even later, so much later, the screams. Long, faraway echoes as from a mountain across a valley all the world's trees between. Must hurt, she thought. stirring the sleep. Ah, hurt don't last. She knew that. Night was over. And night through the trees. God peeking white through the black. He touched his ground with his mighty eye. The pot had bubbled night long. The perfect heat she'd made had concentrated the liquor of the soup. Thin soup was now thick soup. Rich soup. Winter soup. Dark and earthy. It smelled so pretty now. Cordelia took another swipe with a spoon. Dark broth swirled among the roots and other things. She breathed its rich essence as she stirred. Turnips, potatoes, and spinning joint bones made dull taps against the iron pot. The carrots and parsnips swirled. She tasted with her nose. Mm-hmm. The cabin air had gone winter. Just that one night. Imagine, fire warmth and blessed God quiet filled the place. Her room was fragrant with chopped wood, spices, and the bite of soup and winter. Except in the morning whippoorwill, the woods were quiet. The cries were gone, all gone. She added the morels last, fried up in the fat. She tasted the tip of the spoon. She sucked a hot spray of broth. Her first savor of a winter soup. Mmm, it was good. <laughs> After dark, maybe she'd take a jar to him in the cellar. A little. She wanted him the last. It was going to be a long, long winter. She felt it in her bones.
3: Thank you for listening. That will be this week's Tales to Terrify. Next week we will continue and hear from other friends of Tales to Terrify, such as John Everson and Richard Ingling. Take care of yourselves and each other. Pleasant dreams. Mm-hmm. Tales to Terrify is looking for an editor, and I thought that I would let the listeners know, what does an editor for Tales to Terrify do? The primary duties are, one, evaluate stories submitted to the podcast's Gmail account for quality, two, pair accepted stories with appropriate narrators, and three, maintain the show's Google Doc spreadsheet with status of stories This podcast is a labor of love, and no one gets paid, including the editor. For myself, the role took up about one afternoon a week. If you have interest in helping out the podcast or further questions about the specifics, please send me an email at tales to terrify at gmail.com.